For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their soul. Apostasy or salvation? Those are the two cases that the preacher presents. You may recall that these verses are in the middle of a section of exhortation. They tell us how to practically live out the doctrines of Christ that we have studied for multiple chapters. Christ's work is summed up in verses 19 to 21 this way. By his cleansing, we can enter heaven's worship, and he is also our helper, a great high priest. So we are urged to worship God corporately, to keep on believing the promises of God for our future, and to help each other persevere in love and obedience by meeting together and speaking in an edifying way to one another. Now the rest of this chapter showcases two opposite responses to these truths and to these practices. Remember, he's writing to professing Christians. This book was not written as an evangelistic tract to the lost. It was not a sermon to call men to salvation for the first time. Rather, this sermon was preached for those who claimed to have experienced salvation. They understood, they believed, they took hold of the Christ, or so they said, 
who was proclaimed in this letter. And so the book is, as I have told you numerous times, a call to continue to hear God's voice in scripture for a specific purpose so that they might persevere to the end and be saved. This sermon, this book, contains six warning passages. This is the fourth, verses 26 to 31. This is the fourth of those warning passages, and it cautions them to continue in faith and good works so that at judgment day they might stand. Again, our preacher sets before them two cases, two and only two courses of life are open to them. Now the first case is that of apostasy. One way to respond to the truths of a perfect person and work, Jesus Christ, is to reject it all. And then if you do that, according to verse nine, uh, 39, you will be destroyed. The other case, the other approach, the other way set before them is the way of salvation. It's to endure, and again, as verse 39 says, so preserve themselves in salvation. So we're gonna study these two options, asking God to give us grace that we might ultimately receive the good thing that he promised to his people. So first, the first case, apostasy, verses 26 to 31. Now, this section of scripture is thought by many to be one of the more difficult passages to interpret in the Bible. And it certainly does have its challenges. But I think if we will look at it in context and with the help of the Holy Spirit, this portion of scripture can be clear enough for us to profit unto eternal life. So let's break down this first case. And I would have you notice to begin a theoretical history. A theoretical history. Notice that verse 26 opens with a possible, but not necessarily an actual situation. Later, we're gonna hear, Lord willing, next week in verses 32 and following, he's gonna give an actual history, something that was true of them in the past. This he isn't claiming to be their experience. This is a theoretical history or case. So when he says, for if we go on sinning deliberately, he's not charging them with doing that. Let's be clear about that. He doesn't claim that this is their actual practice, but he begins his warning with a theoretical situation. He says, what if you were to purposely practice sin? What if? What if a person claiming to know Christ, notice the middle of the verse, this is someone who goes on sinning after receiving the knowledge of the truth. 
So there's at least a claim to know Christ. What if that person kept on deliberately sinning? What would be the result? Let's talk about deliberate sin. This deliberate sin. This question of what would be the result if a person goes on sinning deliberately immediately gets our attention. Because every Christian knows that there are times in their life when they actively choose to sin. Now, most of our sins are probably what the Bible calls unintentional sins. If that's a new concept to you, look up uh, later. Psalm 19.12 and many places in Leviticus and Deuteronomy that talk about unintentional sins. Sins that uh, really do accrue guilt. They are a breaking of the law of God, but they aren't purposed. They're mistakes. They're moral errors. But we know if we have even a shred of honesty in our souls, we know that we sometimes deliberately choose to sin. It's placed in front of us. Our mind says, I know I shouldn't do this. And we do it anyway. And that provokes, if, if you're alert at all, <laughs> that provo provokes fear in you when you read verses like this. Because it appears from the text that there is no forgiveness for these sins. I mean, it says it very plainly. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. And if we were to summarize the next verse, only hellfire is what remains. So we have heart wrestlings within ourselves. We, we say things like, have I deliberately sinned too much? Have I passed the point of no return? That secret sin that I fought against and and yet still knowingly have committed, uh, maybe for years. Has that put me beyond redemption? Th does God really hear my prayers of confession anymore? I mean, I don't, I don't really feel forgiven. So, so maybe this is me. I mean, am I? Have I sinned beyond forgiveness? And if we start to think about this verse, and we don't think about any other parts of the Bible, etc., we would have to ask ourselves, is there even anyone in heaven? I mean, is heaven empty? Does no one sing the praises of God? For surely everyone, even true Christians, at least occasionally, for most of us, it's daily, I suspect, deliberately sin. You know, the early church struggled with this question. This is not just something made up in the mad mind of your quickly becoming senile pastor. For example, when someone denied Christ to avoid martyrdom, but then came back to the church professing repentance, was there forgiveness for that? 
I mean, they had deliberately kept on publicly forsaking Christ for a period of time. Was there only a fearful judgment to come for them? Many in the early church thought that this verse meant not only was that true, but that every deliberate sin committed after the washing of baptism was unforgiven. This is why many Christians in the early church waited until right before they thought they were going to die to be baptized. Sometimes they were wrong and they lived and they didn't consider life at that point a blessing because they were convinced that heaven, or at least not immediately, heaven was going to be their home upon death, but something else. But this is a good time for me to remind you of something I have taught you before. That our fears often paint fiction. Fear often paints fiction. What I mean by that is that our sinful fears often lie to us. I mean, who said just because your fears feel real and may even seem humble in a certain sense that they are rightly interpreting scripture? When your heart hears deliberate sins have no remaining sacrifice, it may faint and say, oh yes, I don't deserve to be forgiven. So I won't confess my sins. I won't go to God in Christ. I, well, of course you don't deserve to be forgiven. <laughs> None of us do under any circumstances. That's not the question. Don't let your fears eisegete this verse. Don't let your fears place meaning in the verse God didn't intend to be there. This might be news to some of you. Your heart reactions, your soul responses, your emotional reactions to the Bible aren't infallible. They're not. They're not. Don't let your heart fill these words with its fears. Instead, what's the answer? Let the scriptures tell us how to interpret the scriptures. Let the scriptures tell your soul what these verses mean. Now, because this is a real danger, I'm glad to tell you that verse 29 interprets verse 26. It very clearly and plainly tells us how to understand this phrase, deliberate sin, in this place. Deliberate sin may mean something else somewhere else. Words change meaning. They can be used in different senses. Absolutely. But here, what deliberate sin means is explained by verse 29. So next, next let's look on our outline at the scriptural definition of deliberate sin. Here's verse 29. Let me read it to you again. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? 
You see, he's saying there's a deliberate sin that when that's persisted in, there's not a, there's not forgiveness, there's only hellfire. And to prove it, he says, in the Old Testament, if someone sinned this way, he was put to death. How much worse is it to sin against the Christ of the new covenant? What would he deserve? Well, here's the deliberate sin. Here's the deliberate sin explained in verse 29. Here are the details of the deliberate sin. And again, he lists three things that explain this meaning. A deliberate sinner is one who has first trampled underfoot the Son of God. This is the deliberate sin spoken of. The person has trampled underfoot the Son of God. This pictures Jesus Christ on the ground. And a man is jumping on him to trample him to death. Now some of us have seen some very difficult footage in the last few weeks of people down and helpless in the street and then someone coming along and apparently trying to kill them, trying to trample them to death. It's shocking. It's nauseating. That's what this is a picture of. You see, men only grind into the earth what they consider worthless. So this is treating the divine Christ with the utmost contempt. In the context of Hebrews, this means, of course, to, you'll remember the beginning of the book, sneeringly reject Jesus as the son by whom God has spoken his final word of salvation to the world. So that's part of what deliberate sin is in this context. Secondly, a deliberate sinner is one who has profaned the blood of the covenant. Now, we've just had chapters about the value of the blood of Jesus Christ. It washes away sins. It establishes a new and perfect covenant. On and on we could go. This person, in profaning it, is making it common. He is counting it as ordinary. That's what the word profanation means. Just to, to think of something as typical, not special. This is a sinner who once professed faith in the blood of Christ. That blood was valued as holy and a cleansing thing. But now he considers the shedding of Christ's blood to be no different than any other. Hundreds of thousands of people died on Roman crosses and shed their blood. His is no different, is what they were saying. When you count Christ's blood as ordinary, it then becomes useless to forgive sins. So, of course, there's no longer a sacrifice for sins. Here's the third explanation of what a deliberate sin is. A deliberate sinner is one who has outraged the spirit of grace. 
Outraged here is the word for to insult. It's to insult the Holy Spirit, the only one through whom grace comes to us, right? He's the one who applies the grace of Jesus to our hearts. In other words, this man is actually joining himself with this opinion to the enemies of Jesus Christ while he walked the earth who claimed that his work was done by the power of the evil one and wasn't from God. So although this person knew or still knows in some sense that none of that's true, he lies anyway. And so he insults and outrages the spirit of grace. So deliberate sin in this context is not just any sin done against light or on purpose. I hope that releases a burden or a concern from your heart. Deliberate sin here in this place is apostasy. It is, according to the verb tenses used in this verse, a settled and persistent attitude. It's the deliberate choice to deny the truth that you earlier claimed to receive. It is to knowingly and permanently to go on rejecting the person and work of Jesus Christ. The man says, I no longer value and trust in the one who speaks the final word from God and who made the only perfect sacrifice for sin. That's the deliberated sin in view. This is not a, a, a passing, flitting, evil thought that comes into your mind and you go, oh, that's, that's blasphemy against Christ. Oh, that's terrible. I don't, I don't want that. I don't believe that. Get out of my head, Satan. Th this isn't that. This is the settled conviction. This is the choice. This is after deliberation picking this as to where you'll take your stand. This is apostasy. So, of course, this is not a small sin and it's not a temporary sin. This, again, is leaving their profession, leaving the way of salvation, leaving their religion, leaving the true church. It is the abandonment of Christ as the only way of salvation. Well, what's the result of that deliberate sin? Well, its result is given, as we've already mentioned, in the second half of verse 26, in all of verse 27. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Apostasy results in there no longer being a sacrifice for sins. If a man rejects Christ and his cleansing death, how will his crimson red guilty heart be washed white? How will he be forgiven? Where is the sacrifice for him so that he can draw near to God? There is none because there is no other option than Jesus Christ. There aren't two ways to God. There aren't five proper sacrifices that please God. There's but one, and if you have deliberately rejected it after gaining light, what remains? 
All that remains is the fearful expectation of judgment, the fury of a consuming fire. This, of course, is a description of God's wrath. His righteous rage poured out in the eternal dying of the enemies of God. And notice this person is an enemy of God. See what they are called at the end of verse 27? The adversary of God. He's not a friend of God who has merely lost most of his rewards, but of course he's still gonna slip into heaven. No, this is hell. This is the loss of everything worth anything in life. This is when a man should say, oh, I wish I'd never been born. This is not, well, I'm just, I'm the Christian in the far back of the room in heaven. No, 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 this is real loss. This is utter loss. This is being under the wrath of God. This is someone who will die forever in the unquenchable fires of hell. That is the result of sinning deliberately in apostasy. Now, there's a comparison. We've mentioned this as well. It's found in verses 28 and 29. And of course, this is an argument from the lesser to the greater. If a man who deserted God under the Mosaic Covenant was supposed to be physically put to death, how much more should the punishment be to the one who rejects God's son in the new covenant? How much worse punishment is deserved? You see, there is something worse than physical death. There really is. There's something much worse than physical death. It's eternal death. An existence away from the gracious presence of God forever in hell. Notice these verses also tell us who the judge is. In verse 30, who is it that will judge the apostate one? It is the Lord himself. It is the Lord himself. He alone has the prerogative of final judgment. You see, ultimately, vengeance or justice doesn't belong to anyone except God. Oh yes, he delegates it temporarily to men in, in certain positions, uh, in space and time, but ultimately, this belongs only to God. And so the two verses that come from the Song of Moses near the end of his life in, in Deuteronomy um, are brought out to prove this point that it is God who has the right to judge. The preacher says, we know who said these things back here in, in Deuteronomy. It was God. He's the one who says, vengeance is mine. He's the one who says, I will repay. He holds the right to repay evil, and he will judge his people. He doesn't only judge, judge the Gentiles, those outside the covenant. He also judges those who called themselves his people. No one is exempt, and every man will reap what they have sown, Romans 2. God is not a God of love to the exclusion of justice or properly penalizing evil. If he was, he wouldn't be love. He is the judge 
who will righteously evaluate and sentence those who have apostatized, who have deliberately sinned in this way. Those who claimed to be his people but left the way. And then verse 31 is the conclusion. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Indeed, it is, if we are thinking rightly at all. To fall into the hands of the God who is not dead or non-existent, but actually living, who is only holy and loves his son and hates all sin, whose hands are all powerful. They are unstoppable in meeting out his wrath. Any sane man would tremble. Often these verses have been quoted to unbelievers. And there's a sense in which it's being quoted to an unbeliever here, another sense in which it's not. Uh, quoting this verse to an unbeliever is not entirely inappropriate. But this kind warning is written to a people who are calling themselves, remember, the people of God. It's written to the church. It's written to professing believers. And it's meant to sober them into remembering the danger, no, the catastrophe that it is to apostatize from God. Let me give you three uses, and we'll be done. First, a text like this often raises the question in people's minds, do these verses teach that a Christian can lose his salvation? I mean, the person does in some way, ways, appears to be a Christian, but clearly they are going to hell. Can a true Christian apostatize? Now, to properly answer the question, it would help if we had also studied the rest of this chapter. And so we'll comment on this again undoubtedly next week. But after hearing these verses, many of you may be asking this question. Well, let me answer this for you. We're a reformed church. <laughs> We believe that the doctrines of grace, including the full, real perseverance of the saints, are taught in the Bible. We're reformed not because we like the sound of those letters in our ears. We simply think that's shorthand for the longer phrase, what the Bible teaches. Now, we may be right and we may be wrong, but that's who we are. That's who we are by confession. That's who we are by practice. That's who we are by preaching and teaching. We believe that the scriptures clearly teach that when God saves a man, he stays saved. Amen. It's that simple. That when God saves a man, he stays saved. That when they were dead and made alive, they don't ever become dead again spiritually. That once they're placed in Christ's hands, no one can pluck them out of that hand. In fact, that man can't even jump off by himself. He's held by Christ infallibly. So does this text conflict with that? And the answer is no, and let me tell you why. 
The apostate is said to have received the truth, verse 26, and to have been sanctified by the blood of the covenant, later in, verse, in the verse. And yet, clearly, this one is damned. So these descriptions don't name a reality, but they're, the, they're merely the language of profession or appearance. There are many cases of this throughout the scriptures. Think, for example, of Simon the magician in Acts 8. What does it say about Simon? He heard the word and pretended to believe the gospel. That's not what it says. It says Simon heard it, was astonished, and believed. In fact, he so believed that he publicly staked his belief and the text follows by saying, and he was baptized. But did, had he really believed? Had he savingly believed? No, he had believed of a certain kind. He had believed in a certain sense. Oh, he had learned new data. He had been enlightened in a certain way. But it becomes clear as you read the chapter that he had never repented, that he had never had true faith, Peter says, you're still in the gall of your wickedness. You're still there. You're still damned. Repent so that all this evil won't come upon you. You see, the Bible speaks in the language of appearance. We don't know each other's salvation state perfectly. We aren't God. We see the outer man. We don't see the inner man. Oh, there are times... Your and my inner man is revealed to one another in, a, in certain ways, but we don't infallibly know. God does. So it's very possible for people to make a, in a certain sense, sincere profession of faith and not be a Christian. That's really possible. Here is a man who made, or at least theoretically, here is a man who made a profession and is set apart from sinners. He even tied himself to the covenant people of God. And so these verses rightly describe him visibly. But as his apostasy later proves, it didn't actually describe him inwardly or spiritually. This is part of why I, when, when only church members are here, I still preach the gospel sometimes because it could be that some of you need the gospel for the first time. It's possible. As John said, as the apostle John said in 1 John 2.19 and following, they went out from us, but were not of us. In other words, there were, there were some in the circle of Christianity who'd made a profession of faith and joined the local congregation. He said, well, wait a minute, we say, John, how, how can you know that they weren't actually of us? Well, because of what they did later in their life. They left us. He goes on this way. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. If you are a real Christian, you will persevere. Oh, you'll have ups and downs, stops and starts, but you will keep going. John goes on, but they went out from us, 
that it might be plain that they all are not of us. You see, they apostatized. They had a claim, a profession, an appearance of salvation, but they never really possessed it. And their apostasy simply made plain that fact. R.C. Sproul is often quoted as saying, it's not the profession of faith that saves, but the possession of faith. Now, of course, possession makes a profession. We're not denying the necessity, the, the good work of profession. We're simply saying you can profess and it not be from the work of God. It can be self-will. You make choices as an unsaved person and perhaps under the right circumstances, you can profess Christ. But unless you possess the faith of a born again person, you're not actually placing your faith in Jesus Christ. You're just making a dead profession. Many people in some sense receive the truth, join a church, are set apart, but it is only faith actually worked in the newly regenerate heart that lays hold of Christ and so is saved. Merely professing faith does nothing. You need to really believe that for yourself, for your friends, for your children. Merely professing faith does nothing. If the profession is rooted in the possession of faith, then it does everything. It lays hold of Christ and in him, the rest of your salvation is absolutely certain. And we know from scripture, there are a number of cases, John 6, John 8, Simon, many, many other cases. We know from scripture and our own sad experience that there are many who fall into this category. So do these verses teach that a Christian can lose his salvation? Well, if you mean a professing Christian only, yes, they do. But if you mean a real Christian, someone in whom faith has been worked by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit applying the grace of Jesus Christ, no, no, they can never be lost. No, they can never lose their salvation. God forbid, may it never be. These verses do teach that someone might name Christ and start down the road of identifying with God's people and yet ultimately show themselves to be unconverted. That's our first use. Here's the second. My second use is a question. I'm not going to ask you, are you going on sinning deliberately? You and I both already know the answer to that question. It's a shameful yes. I am going to ask you this question, though. Are you going on sinning in this way deliberately? Are you sinning deliberately as these verses describe? Are you trampling Christ? Are you profaning his blood? Are you insulting the Holy Spirit? 
Well, if you are doing these things, then I must tell you, you are in truly the greatest of all dangers. There is no situation worse than you are in right now. And you must immediately return to Christ and learn of him truly, spiritually, not merely with the head, but with your whole soul. You must repent of your rejection of Christ and you must value him as the only savior of men. Otherwise, you will experience the wrath of God. You will. It's a promise. It's a guarantee. It's as certain as is heaven for those who truly are united to Christ by faith. Third and finally, for those of us, and again, this is all of us, who sin deliberately, not in this way, not in the not, uh, apostatizing way, but in the non-apostatizing way. Learn this comfort. There is forgiveness for your deliberate sins in Jesus Christ. There is help for you against your deliberate sins in Jesus Christ. As much as you may feel defeated by purposed episodes of sin, remember, brothers and sisters, you have a great high priest over the house of God. There is forgiveness. 1 John 1 and 1, 9 applies to you. Wear it out if you have to. If you confess your sin, he will forgive your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Brother, sister, where else will you go? Claim the blood of Jesus and wash your sins away. He who is the fulfillment of Zechariah 13.1. He's opened a fountain where you can cleanse yourself. What's the fluid in the fountain? It's his blood. Go, wash yourself, be clean. You have that power because the Holy Spirit lives within you. You have his promise. If you will confess, he will forgive you. So yes, confess your non-purposed sins. But confess your purposed sins. Confess your deliberate, even your brazen sins. Go to Christ and he will cleanse your conscience according to his promise from dead works so that you can in your new life, serve the living God. Oh, may God give you grace to not only believe this, but know the peace that comes from experiencing this. Let's pray.